Writers' Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and Caroline won't be joining us today, although I think she would have really enjoyed reading this book. Um, I can, as, as, since she's turning 87 this week, um, we gave her, gave her a week off. <laughs> anyway, uh, our, the book we have today is called Magician of Light, and it's by Jay Fremont. And she is an author and veterinarian for more than 25 years. She practiced small animal veterinary medicine and served as an adjunct professor at a local university and community college. She lives in Southern California. She's now retired from veterinary medicine and spends her time developing her artistic side. So in addition to writing, she makes jewelry, does glass fusing, sewing, and creating mixed media. She also enjoys photography, gardening, and posting on Instagram, as well as building gorgeous Pinterest boards, which I, I'll need to check those out. And her and um, Jay Fremont's book that we're discussing today is Magician of Light. Welcome to Writer's Voices. Thank you so much, Monica. <laughs> it's great to be here. Now, do you just go by Jay, or is there? Uh... Yeah, I, I prefer Jay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Very good. I've gone. I've gone to one letter. <laughs> <laughs> You've just simplified your life. <laughs> That's right. So, Magician of Light is the story. Uh, it's an historical novel about. Rene Lalique, am I pronouncing his name correctly? Yeah, I, there's many pronunciations. The French pronounce it differently, but I, I, I just say Rene because it's easier. I think most people know, you know, as a, as an English speaking person, Americanized uh, pronunciation. So yes. Do you? How do the French pronounce it? Well, I'll probably mess it up, but but they they. They said they have they pronounce their R's a little differently, so uh, uh, they say like Rene like that. Ah, so, Rene Lalique. Okay. Rene, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Rene Lalique. So I just it's easier Rene people recognize yeah. that. So. Now he was an artist in glass and jewelry and yeah. What? Tell us a little. Just give us a little bit of history of him for people who might not be familiar with with his work. Okay, well, he actually started out as a jeweler, but then made his way into glass making. And I can, I mean, I can say a lot. So, you know, it just, <laughs> there, he, too, he was just such a prolific artist that, you know, you could just go on and on and on about everything that he did. And so that was one thing. You know, when I wrote this is I had to, you know, kind of pick and choose what I wanted to talk about. And so it it became more about his, the novel became more about his personal life than really than his work because there's been so many books written about his work. But he, he initially was a jeweler and then transformed into a glassmaker about when he was about 50, and he became a master. He was considered a master in both of these um, aspects of the decorative arts. So he really he was pretty phenomenal in that sense. And what time period did he work in? 
Well, he he was born in 1860. Um, he was actually apprenticed at the age of 16 um, to Louis Akak, who was a, a renowned uh, goldsmith at the time, a jeweler in France and Paris. And and then so he really started his career at 16. I mean, you know, some of that was as he was as a student, but and then he pretty much worked all the way until um, he kind of became disabled in, during the World War II. And so he kind of, I guess, stopped. I mean, the, the war stopped everything anyway. But uh, so from 16 until he was like 80 years old. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, I mean, most people don't work, you know, work that long. But he, his main, I mean, he, his work spanned like three of what are arguably the most significant periods in the art decorate, the art decorative arts, which was the Belle Epoque, um, the Art Nouveau, and then Art Deco. So he, you, you know, it was a, a really long span of time, you know, from when he was 16 till he was 80, he was wow. still doing stuff. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I don't know that I could work that long yet. <laughs> so what drew you to want to write about his life? Well, this was, this is kind of the crazy thing. So when I was, um, I was actually creating stories for my blog and, I had written some other stuff. I was working on some other writing pieces, and um, I had started to research for a novel about ancient Egypt. And what happened was I had this dream one night about meeting this guy sitting in a chair behind a counter, and he was talking to me, and I'm like, but it was like whispering. I couldn't understand what he was saying. So... Um, when I woke up, I'm like, okay, who was this guy? And then he appeared to me again in a dream three months later, and he actually told me that I was to promote him. I was to write a book and to promote him. And I'm like, what? And then another, <laughs> and then another six weeks, and I was like, who is this guy, and why is he haunting me? And then about 18 months after the first dream um one of the one of the people that i was researching in ancient egypt was um tutmos the third who was a pharaoh in the 18th dynasty and um one of the things that tutmos did was because he was he was it was funny because they actually called him the napoleon of egypt because he was very militaristic and he did a lot of conquering, you know, in that in those areas. And what he would do is he'd bring back artisans to Egypt and and then learn all their ways of stuff that they were, you know, how they made stuff. And so glassmaking really became elevated during that time. And so I was kind of like, oh, glassmaking, let me learn a little bit more, you know, about that, the process. And, and I stumbled across... Lalique's picture on the internet and it was exactly how I saw him in that first dream the way he was dressed and sitting and I was like whoa okay <laughs> I just figured out who this mystery man is and then ultimately as I as I delved into 
get to know him, then he became the story, and and Tutmos and his friends actually became another story. So. Oh wow! Now, when you started writing about him, you said you'd been writing short stories. Were you? Did you think this was going to be a novel? Um. Well, I. Uh, yes, I had been started out to do the novel about ancient Egypt. So yeah, it was it was the novel, and then actually what happened was I I kind of incorporated him into that story. But then when I was finished writing that, it had become it was like four storylines intertwined, and it was like two hundred thousand words. Which, Whoa! <laughs> yeah, and so publishers. <laughs> No, you know, because especially, you know, as a as a debut novelist, you know, there's a certain n- number count that that's expected in the publishing industry. And they want usually they want your, you know, like a novel is cons- like a short story or like 60,000 words, a novel is like 100,000. So I knew to even submit it that I'd have to cut it in half. So that's what I did. So I kind of ended up with two books. Oh, okay. So is the other book published also? No, no, that's that's still in the works. I I've gone through and I've done significant editing because I wanted to make it as a separate story. So I kind of changed some of the storylines in the second one. But I, you know, I'm I'm kind of seeing how this one goes and you know <laughs> see how this how, if this one's successful but i have to work with an editor but that yeah there's plans to to publish that one in the future i hope you know and okay so magician of light centers mostly on lalique but it also does have a lot of um about ancient egypt in it as well and it's set partially in paris and partially mm-hmm. in Egypt and par- and partially in England. Yes. So what I'm curious about was how close to his actual life the events in this book are. Actually, the the there's the beginning part um there is some conjecture. Well, you know, of course, whenever you write about a famous person you know, you have to pretty much stick to reality as close as you can. And so the reason why I chose the the period that I did was because when I started to research him, he had actually, after he'd been apprenticed to Louis Akak for two years, and he was, you know, he was doing school in Paris, um, they they really don't know why he decided to leave Paris and go to London. But, I mean, I suspect, I just suspect that, you know, A, he wanted to learn, you know, better his English and what better way than to go, you know, live in a different country, right, that speaks that language. But he also, um, the school in Sydenham was actually housed in the Crystal Palace, and I couldn't find any information about that because um, I don't know if you know that, but the Crystal Palace was it was built um, by Victorian Albert for the 1851. Oh right, I remember that. In the, it was in the uh, Vic, um, Victoria TV series right. recently. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, he, they had that built, but then of course 
it was in you know in London. So they they actually transported that edifice and then erected it in Sydenham, and it be, kind of became like a um, like a, what Disneyland. You know, I mean, it, for the, for them it was like a an amusement park almost. Mm. You know, because they had all these halls and you know like they had a renaissance hall and a roman hall and a greek and of course they had an egyptian pavilion you know and it was all this big huge in this glass structure but what happened was they had one fire and then and then in 1936 they had another devastating fire and that that structure burnt completely to the ground and so I'm sure that any historical records or archives that were stored there, you know, got burnt up. So, um, so they don't really. I couldn't really find any information, you know, on that period. So I thought, well, that's the best place. A, he's young because he was 20, you know, 18 to 20, you know, young love, mm -hmm. you know, to make, yeah, to center the story, the love story there, you know. And then, because there just wasn't a lot of um, information regarding that um, time period, you know, and, or, and what he did. But but he probably went there to study the industrial techniques. You know, that, that was a big thing. The age of, you know, revolution, the industrial revolution was kind of happening right then and there. So... And and Japanism and and Morris William Morris you know there was there was a lot of stuff I think he wanted to branch out and just you know artistically. Mm -hmm. Now the character of Lucinda was she based on someone in history or was she your imagination? No, nope, nope, <laughs> yeah, just completely made up. <laughs> okay, so tell us a little bit about Lucinda and how how you developed her well i wanted lucinda to be um this enigmatic character that you know she you know um you know mental illness is such a, a malign thing and you know i think <laughs> i hate to say this but i think we all kind of have a little bit of mental illness in ourselves just because of the way that we, you know, everybody's perspective and how you relate to the world is so different, you know, and it's all based on your upbringing and, you know, um, but I think another thing, too, that I was kind of, I was trying to kind of aim towards is that, you know, I kind of let the reader decide if her ghosts are real, you know, the the, the process that she goes through um is it reality or, you know, or does she just perceive reality in a different way? And I think that, that people like that, like mediums and, you know, people like that, that they are perceived as like, yeah, you're, you're not all here with us, you know? And so, um, but I also wanted to touch on, you know, the scientific aspect of it and, and how they treated people, you know, because psychiatry was a burgeoning um, field back in that time period where they just, they didn't know how to treat people with mental illness, you know, they just locked them up or isolated them or did horrible things to them, really. Yeah. Be you know, because they were trained to, they were, they were treating the body instead of the mind, you know, people think that, oh, you know, everybody was talking to them but they 
they really weren't. They, you know, Jung, Carl Jung, and um, um, uh, what's his face? Um, Freud. You know who I'm? T- yeah. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not a Freud was so weird. I, I lean more towards Carl Carl Jung. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah. And that really wasn't until the 1920s, I think. You know, so it it, it started a lot of they were studying a lot of stuff and trying to come up with, you know, why is our brain dysfunctioning? What could be causing this, you know? So that's kind of how um, how she develops. And, of course, women were sometimes treated as insane just because they didn't want to accept the the restrictions that were placed on women at the time. Right, exactly. I think that, well, this is even true today i think that and it's no fault of men i mean i think that it's just it's a hormonal thing you know i mean that the, and plus society teaches men not to address their emotions and so you know when you're when you're faced with this emotional woman they just want to every all of them are hysterical and and get away from me. We have put them somewhere else you know because they these women are trying to process their emotions and the the sad part about all of that was kind of in that time frame, um, you know, 1850 and onward upwards till we, you know, till we got the vote. I mean, it was 70 years, so women were very restricted in society. You know, we had bulky clothing. You couldn't go out and see anybody. You had to have somebody with you because you might, you know, succumb to your <laughs> contemptuous ways, you know. Um, there was, and especially in upper class women, it was even more pronounced how many, like you said, how many societal restrictions were put upon them. And, you know, you can't read, you can't go to a profession, you can't go to school, you know, so what are they going to do? They're going to sit around and sew and go nuts, you know. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of what happened to Lucinda. <laughs> right. <laughs> Grandpa wants me to do embroidery. <laughs> Wow. So she became very interested in each in ancient Egypt, as was her grandfather. Was that a common interest in society at that in English society at that time? Yeah, actually, you know, the French were really after Napoleon went there in um, 1798, the French society actually almost became obsessed with it. Um, and so I think that that kind of spilled over, you know, that, again, archaeology, you know, once they started saying, oh, well, what is all this stuff, you know? And so um, they wanted to, they started, you know, uh, the Italians did it too. Belzoni was over there. He was an early um, archaeologist, if you will, explorer. But I think that, you know, the British and the French, yeah, they went over there and were like, yeah, we're interested in digging this stuff up and finding out about, you know, ancient societies and whatnot. And, I mean, that's, I think that was kind of uh, the bane of the Egyptian government now is that, you know, there's so much of their ancient artifacts <laughs> everywhere else in the world, and they don't, you know, they don't even have their own. So, um, no. you know, but they didn't. They, did, they didn't find a, 
you know, they the what are the Egyptian poor people gonna do with a rock? You know, they're like, if this feeds my family, here's this rock. You know, have it or whatever. Now, in in your novel, you you allude to um, a minister or something, a government official who was that the the archaeologists were supposed to basically give them you know, make sure that they saw or were aware of everything that was being taken out. So there seemed like there was some effort to control it, but yes. but the the British people just didn't really go along with that. They just sort of stole it. Right. Well, I think that I think that any any of them, if they could get away with it, would. But they they also the French and the English kind of jockeyed for who was going to be controlling that area too. You know, because Especially, you know, when the Suez, or um, yeah, is it the Suez Canal? Yeah, they, when they built that, you know, that was a big fight because that that opened up the shipping line there. But yeah, for the archaeology, the French established it first, and then eventually the the British, you know, when they discovered Tutankhamun, I think the British had kind of taken over the Department of um, Antiquities at that point, but mm. don't quote me on that. Yeah. <laughs> I know that they were, you know, they were, they all, the old rich people wanted to go, they were interested in that, you know what I mean? It was now a hobby or whatever, you know Right, what I'm right, saying? yeah. And there was also a strong interest in that society at that time in spiritualism, and so these kind of intertwined, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. They, um, the you know that there was this um, surgeon. You know, even people like Sir Conan Doyle, who you think, you know, he the guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes. You think, oh, that guy is Mister Medical, but he he was very much into that. You know, so it there was definitely spiritualism had a an effect on people's seances and trying to contact their dead. And I, I don't know if you know this. Um, Edison was trying to develop a machine that that could talk to the dead. Did you know that? No, I did not. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, I came across that um, because when I was, you know, I did a lot of research. I did a lot of research on um, Sarah Bernhardt, who I mentioned in the book, because she was a pivotal player in Lalique's life. But, yeah, she came over here, and so I was kind of reading about that. And then I was... I don't know how I stumbled on. Uh, that's the best part about writing historical fiction is you get down this rabbit hole of lore and you're like, whoa, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> what are some other fascinating things you learned in this process? Um, well, one of the interesting things that I learned was, um, you know, you've heard of Francois Coty, right? That he was another person in La League's life who pretty much was the one, the pivotal player that turned him from a jeweler into a glassmaker. I mean, La League was using um, glass in his jewelry. Uh, before, you know, he was using this technique called pot de verre, which is like a glass paste, and then he'd put it into like a mold. And he also did enameling. So, but but Coty came to him, and and by this time, Lalique was pretty famous, and Coty wasn't yet. I mean, he was trying, even though he was starting with his 
perf, uh, perfume. Um, but he came to uh, Lalique and said, you know, I want you to help me design these perfume bottles. But one of the things I learned about Coty is that he was France's first billionaire. He was a billionaire when he lived. In, in 1928, he was the fifth richest person in the world. Wow. And that, and that was all because they marketed to women. That was he figured out we got to market to women because they're the people that are going to buy these things. Whoa. <laughs> he understood right away the whole, right, do you want to go shopping, honey? <laughs> no, I don't want to go shopping. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> wow. Now, you've done s- some work with glass. Yes. I, I'm not anywhere. <laughs> in, in fact, I've oh, I only started doing that uh, well, once we retired and we we moved out. We're in a community of 55 and older, and they had one of the best things is our little community has an art center, and so we actually have some kilns and um, some ladies who uh, have done glass, and so I do fused glass, which is not anything like what you know glass blowing or anything like what he was doing but but it's fun i i love it it's uh it's fun to do so what is fused glass how do you do it well basically you you actually just put a pattern of glass on top of other glass and then it and then you put it in the kiln and then it and then it melts so but there's i mean it's People have taken fused glass to, they paint on there, they paint on the glass, like they have glass paint, there's different ways to fire. I mean, some of the fused glasses, it's not the same as like, you know, what you would think of like traditional glass blowing and stuff like that, but um, but it, it's just, it's something real fun that somebody like me who's an amateur hobbyist can do and, and you know, have fun. So it's like what I what I've done is, take like uh, like I did a Victorian lady and I just found or I made pieces of glass you know like different colored glass and then kind of built her skirt and her umbrella and her head and hat and everything and so so it came out great it was fun (laughs) so is it does it end up looking kind of like a mosaic or well actually it kind of melt it melts a little bit more together but it but it is it is like that. I mean, it's it's similar to a mosaic, but but not you know stained glass because they have the frame right there. It doesn't have a frame because you're just melting it onto the glass itself. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. Now, do you do yeah. glass beads as well? No, I but I would love to do that. <laughs> but it's oof. I went to see a, a lady do it. She, we had gone to an art festival down here, and um, she gave me her card, and she said, yeah, come by and visit. I mean, we're going to have, like, an open studio day, blah, blah, blah. So I went down there, and she did it. And basically what they do is they have, like, a glass, a rod, and they hold it in front of a um, torch, you know, a, a special torch. And then they drizzle the the glass rod, you know, like a line, you know what I mean? Like a thin, because they make glass rods like spaghetti. Right, right, yes. And then they, and then they, so they make the bead and then they drizzle the other 
glass on top of it. I mean, it's uh, oh, wow. it's so phenomenal. Yeah, those glass be- those glasswork beads are just oh, just amazing. Wow. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Jay Fremont, author of Magician of Light. Why did you decide to title the book that? Well, it was interesting because, so one of the first books that I got when I started to research him was, it was called Enchanted by Glass, and it's published by the Corning Museum of Glass, and so you know, I was like, oh, enchanted, you know, that sounds so, you know, uh, magician. And and plus I wanted to, I was kind of doing the Egyptian magic, so that played into it. But then the interesting thing was that when I was reading about him, one of his contemporaries called him a magician, you know, because of the stuff that he was doing that was just so inventive and experimental and you know just amazing how he was coming up with this stuff so that kind of informed the magician part of it and then the light came kind of came about that because one of the things that Lalique did that was so different from everybody else is that he used he really focused more on using clear glass or frosted glass and then sculpting on it and using the play and the light of the natural material. You know, before that, there was a famous glassmaker, Emile Gallet, I think his name was, um, but he did. They painted on glass, and so Lalique used the transparency and then the way the the light played on it. And and, and what's interesting is that. Uh, I don't think most people don't know he was also an inventor, so he actually had uh, he obtained 16 patents in his career, and four of them in used, uh, involved the use of light in his you know in the glass and how it lit stuff up. So that's kind of how it came about. Oh, wow! No, I did not know that. So when was glass like? When did humans start using glass bottles for example making glass oh bottles. my gosh well <laughs> but back to the to the egyptian d- dynasty like that you know they were they were doing jewelry and and oh my gosh glasses goes way back i couldn't i couldn't tell you where it started wow. but i do know by tutmosis time that you know they were really starting to um to elevate it really you know start producing things you know other than just glass beads you know starting to produce vessels and and different techniques and stuff and you know when i was researching it you know they they did the same kind of thing they had you know their firing ovens where they used these clay vessels to make like the ingots of glass and then you know they used molds they actually built these slump molds out of like dung and other (laughs) materials stuck on a rod and then they formed the glass around it so they weren't doing the glass blowing yet they were using more of a mold kind of technique too but then they had the annealing ovens which i don't know how much you know about glass but once they um once they make it they have to cool it very very carefully because if it the what happens is the outside surface tends to cool 
quicker than the inside, and what happens is the glass can break or shatter. So they had to move it into these ovens where they would gradually let the fire die out and you know so then the vessel could cool and and the thing this is a crazy thing i learned that because towards the towards the end uh, lalique mainly just did architectural pieces like he designed doors and uh, huge windows and um he did this huge um fountain for the for the uh 1925 um the uh, decorative arts exhibition, you know, like a great, it was like a world's fair kind of mm. thing. Um, he, he created this um, fountain that was like, ugh, what was it? It was like 40 feet tall and it had 136 female figurines on it. And that, and that sat at the entrance to the 1925. So he was using, he was doing these phenomenally huge um, pieces. And it, it, I read somewhere that it would, t- it took months for them after they fired it. It took like three months for it to cool down. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, crazy. And, and these, these other things, the other person that I talk about was, Kalus Gulbekian. I don't know if you've heard of him. The Gulbekian Museum is in um, Lisbon, Portugal. But he was a he was an oil billionaire. He made his money in oil, and um, he knew Lalique, and he loved his stuff. And so he commissioned like like 145 pieces of jewelry from him. And so what happened was Lalique just went nuts because <laughs> he 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 well he wasn't making jewelry that was ever meant to be worn. Mm. He it was yeah his if you ever look at his stuff they're like mini sculptures and miniature paintings and you're like this is a brooch. <laughs> I can't I no wonder your eyes went bad. <laughs> You know, because he he just used enamel and he painted them. I mean, it was amazing. So I was reading there was a, a famous uh, brooch that he made, a dragonfly, dragonfly brooch. And um, it took like four months to make because it was these wings were, he did them in an enamel called plicajour, which is they basically, um you know how enamel, you know what cloisonne is, right? Where it's little wires and then they have the... Yes. If you, yes. Yeah, okay. So so it's, it's like cloisonne, but what they do is they make the fretwork, the gold fretwork, and then there's like this copper plate on the back that the, the glass doesn't really, um, it's just there as a frame. And then they do all the enamel in there and get all the, the little these little cells filled up and then they take acid or they or they rub it away they scrape away the copper and then so what happens is it becomes like a miniature stained glass window but it's a dragonfly wing wow wow you know (laughs) and and i mean this thing is not the the wings are maybe i'm not sure what the size of it is because i've never seen it but but they're not that big to have be a miniature stained glass window. It's crazy. Wow. Now, do you have you seen any of Renee Lalique's work in real life? 
Well, I I have uh, I have done a little bit of collection, but no, we we're going to go to the Corning Museum of Glass, and and we had actually planned a trip to Portugal because I wanted to go to the Gubekian. And then COVID hit, and then mm. like, oh, wah, wah, wah. Yeah. So we're actually planning a trip this um, this fall to go back and do fall colors because we, you know, with my husband worked at a university, so we never were able to go during anywhere during the fall. You know, he was he's just too busy. And so we said, well, let's go this year because we'd always wanted to do a fall colors back east, you know, and just absorb all those deciduous trees <laughs> that oh, we don't huh. we don't we don't have that in California. <laughs> right. We have right. the green and the brown season. And it, it, it's it, you do get some color, but it's not like, you know, it's not like back in the deciduous forests in the east. Wow. So, uh so we're going to go to the Corning Museum of Glass. They have a rather large collection that was donated to them, and so we're going to go check those out. Wow. You're listening to Writer's Voices. Our guest today is Jay Fremont, author of Magician of Light. Jay, would you mind reading a little bit from the book for us? Sure, no problem. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read a couple pages out of the beginning of the chapter. So, um, Okay. Uh, chapter One, The Goddess Come, Rene, Louis-Anne called. Rene stopped, set down his file, and took off his apron. Calling out, Coming, Monsieur Coq, he grabbed his coat and hat, put them on, and hurried towards the three gentlemen waiting for him at the door. A Coq's son, Louis, closed and locked the door. Rene, you are learning quickly and are so productive. Don't you agree, Father? The older man nodded perfunctorily. Shall we take a carriage? Rene smiled to himself. He knew Louis-Anne was not one to lavish praise. It's a beautiful May day, replied Louis. It will take us some time, but I feel like walking. Louis grinned at his father. Do you have the tickets? Frowning, Louis-Anne nodded again. We. Rene also knew the old man did not like exercise. <laughs> didn't the doctor <laughs> didn't the doctor say walking would be good for your knees? Louis chided his father. We'll get a cab back. Without replying, the elder Acoc just started down Rue de la Paix. Rene exchanged a grin with Andre, Louis's younger brother, as they followed the two older men. They were headed to the eighteen seventy six Paris Salon exhibition, housed in the Palais des Champs de Lysie. Louis Ain was a silversmith as well as a fabricator of expensive traveling cases for the wealthy. Eventually, his oldest son took over the business and focused more on goldsmithing. Louis had produced finely crafted jewels that soon drew French royalty, including Empress Eugenie. Louis had been looking to expand and take on a protege. Then René's father, Auguste, had died suddenly the previous summer and Louis decided to adopt René. This unexpected change of fortune brought René to his current situation of being apprenticed at 16 to a goldsmith who catered to the rich and famous. He and André, four years older, had become friends. Louis was a leader in the art and jewelry community due to his elite connections. Popular, wealthy, and intelligent, he kept abreast of Parisian style and served on influential boards. 
Clever himself, Rene was aware that his foster father had wisdom to impart in the ways of the business world. When Louis talked, his young ward listened. Can you believe there were 4,000 entries this year? Louis asked his father. Most of it was garbage, Louis Ain responded in a surly tone. Are you talking about the Impressionists? Who else? The Académie des Beaux-Arts must consider all art, Father, not just the classical. Besides, the young artists bring a fresh viewpoint. Louis turned back and looked at René. Isn't that right, René? He winked. We, René answered enthusiastically. Louis Ain just harumphed and said nothing as they continued walking. His son resumed talking. Did you read Emile Zola's scathing art review regarding Georges Clarin's portrait of Mademoiselle Bernhardt? He said Sarah's serpentine pose was physically impossible and she doesn't have a pretty face. He commented that Clarin only rendered her vulgar sensuality and eroticism. Louis turned again and grinned widely at the young men behind him. Only a lover can portray such intimacy. Rene chuckled because he knew, as the rest of Paris did, that Clarin had briefly been Sarah Bernhardt's lover, as well as an ardent admirer of the actress and in her private circle of friends. Andre piped in. I read that Clarin's portrait was one of the most prominent of the salon. Its composition was original and had splendid color. Louis nodded. Mademoiselle Bernhardt has made quite an impression this year on stage and in art. There are two portraits of her in the salon, one done by a woman and one by a man. Speculation is that both are her lovers. Hmm. At this remark, Rene elbowed Andre, and they exchanged another grin. Louis Ains snorted and shook his head. She provides endless fodder for gossip with her flamboyant theater performances and all her lovers. And I hear that she wears pants. What is the world coming to? <laughs> I, I think I think Divine Sarah is sexy, said Andre, a femme fatale on and off stage, a Parisian goddess. I can't wait to see the painting. Renee nodded in agreement. Well, we shall see, won't we? Louis Ains said with finality. A carriage rattled by in the street, drowning out most of whatever Louis was saying to his father about the Third Republic's corruption. Not interested in politics, René stopped listening. André slowed his pace a little, and René fell back beside him. We should go out this weekend, André said. I never did celebrate my birthday properly this year. There is a particular cabaret that I would like to go to in Montmartre. Will they let me in, René asked. Your mustache makes you look older, and, Andre smirked, your pretty friend Claudette likes it. <laughs> he motioned towards the mustache as if he were going to pull on it. Rene drew back his head but gave his companion a wry smile. Andre laughed. Don't worry, I'll buy and you can pay me back. Besides, I have friends. Rene nodded his head. We. Oui. They walked on in silence, which gave Rene the chance to contemplate all that had happened in the last year. After he had accepted the position with the Acocks, he had been enrolled in École des Arts Décoratifs, the School of Decorative Arts, to further his education in art and design. He enjoyed his classes, although some of his, the professors were boring. Much like the Acocks, they preferred tradition over innovation. René had, 
had other ideas. He aspired to be inventive and experimental and to create jewelry with a variety of materials rather than rehashing old techniques and concepts. To him, it wasn't work. It was play. If he didn't enjoy what he was doing, he did not stay at it long. But he knew that the art schools had a huge impact and influence on young artists' metiers. Those who did not conform to expectations were not as likely to be selected by committees, win awards, or even be noticed by the public. To succeed with originality, he would have to produce something phenomenal. His work was cut out for him. Soon the group came to the end of the street and turned on to Place Vendôme. As they walked through the large square, René imagined his future. He would be a well-known bougier like his benefactor, but not just in France, the world. My jewelry will be works of art worn by royals and others, perhaps displayed for all to see in museums. He smiled inwardly at his grandiose dreams. René glanced up at the imposing facade of a building and then at the window fronts of the expensive retail shops as they passed by. Someday I will be rich and famous. I will have a store here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> now, how long did you work on this book? Well, because I was doing the Egyptian research, too, I mean, if if you really want to say from start to finish, including um, working with my editor, it was probably five to six years. That's really, considering that you were almost writing two books during that time, that's really not that long. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it it's the the editing process. When when I submitted my book, the 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 publisher had me hook up with the coach, but I hadn't had a, an editor. So um, I think one of my things was that I um, I kind of stopped reading contemporary literature. I mean, as a kid, I never got my nose out of a book. I literally read, you know, Dickens and Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, you know, Stephen King. I mean, I was like a voracious reader. And then I, you know, once I went to vet school, I was like, okay, let's read textbooks. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I have time for. And then, of course, I was practicing my um, uh, future, I should say, husband, I uh, had a couple of kids, and then between the, you know, working, children, teaching at the college, you know, I just didn't have time. And so when I wrote this, I I wasn't really up on what I would call current literature because, you know, they, there's this whole show, don't tell, show, don't tell. And, and my coach really had to drill it into me because, you know, I think one of the things that I did was, you know, say instead of saying he furrowed his brow, he was perplexed, you know, which, you know, that, and I just, you know, I had to get into that, that mindset. So, you know, the editing process, she really helped me to bring my, uh, the personal characters thoughts out a little bit more, but, um, you know, for, she had me restructure stuff a little bit, but it it was um, mainly she just polished up what I had, you know. So that that was a good thing for me to go through, you know, because I really didn't 
I was a scientist, <laughs> you know, not <laughs> so a writer. So had you taken writing classes or, you know? No, no, not at but all. But you've been writing these short stories for your blog. Tell us how you got started on that and what type of writing that was or is. Well, it's so I decided, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I want to do, I want to get these stories out here. And um, I had actually self-published some stuff and it just it wasn't successful but I don't I really you know I just took it off the market because I was like okay this is not my best work and I didn't you know I really I was clueless honestly about the whole publishing writing industry you know so this was just one of my things that I think um you know, when I think back on it, maybe it's because I read James Harriet's books. <laughs> you know, I, maybe I was inspired by him. <laughs> because he was a veterinarian. <laughs> right, and he was such a great writer. Oh now, my were gosh, you writing about about your veterinary patients, or what were well, you actually, writing about? Well, actually, you know, I um, the thing is, is that um, – I didn't really write about the medical, but almost almost all of my stories have an animal. You know, there's animal characters in my story. So um, one of the first, the what the one novel that I did, um, it, it did deal with going in and having a veterinarian and you know that kind of stuff. But um, but the other short stories, like I might have a cat, you know, would be or a dog. You know, and and in Magician of Light, there's actually um, a couple of dogs, a cat, and, a horse. <laughs> and 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 they, they, you know, they they serve as characters too because that's you know they're little entities in themselves. And you know, as a veterinarian, you know, the animals have personalities just like people do. So, so. Well, I'm looking at your at your website, which is Dr. J D R J Fremont dot com, and there's this. Eccentric, eccentric yeah, saga. Saga. So what yes. is that? <laughs> well, egg eccentric is kind of a play on um, like eccentric, you know, like weird. Okay. Because I like to, like I said, I, I've I've always been drawn to the, I should say, non-physical world. You know, if you want to say supernatural, metaphysical, and so. I, you know, because I have these weird dreams, I, I actually take inspiration from my dreams. Like, oh, that'd be great. You know, that's a great idea for a story or whatever. And, and so, you know, those are, that's kind of how that got started is, um, I said, okay, I want to just write these little, um, you know, short stories that are, you know, you know, a little bit moralistic. I don't know. Maybe some people would find them somewhat preachy. But I, I think it's, I just kind of try to relate it, you know, to the spiritual. And they actually, um, I was trained to weave it so that each story had like a character or a name that was in one of my other stories. So I did that. Um, I did that probably for about a year. And then I was just like, this is really hard to write something and get it done in a week you know it was it was very much like a deadline you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah yeah you know the blog you just don't understand 
these people that have blogs of the I mean it's like a podcast, you know, people just don't realize all the work that goes into it. Right. They just don't. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, it, there's a lot of work that goes into it. But I think that's anything, you know. I mean, that was the one thing that really inspired me about Lalique is that he just was not going to stop. I mean, and people are like, man, man, you're not going to be. And he's like, oh, yes, watch me. Here I go. I'm going to do this, you know. And he was an experimenter and, you know, an inventor. And I think to be good at anything, you really have to try to be on the cutting edge and just believe in yourself and keep going, you know. So you – you wrote this book, you decided to publish it. How did you find your publisher? Well, I'd actually, because I had done the self-publishing route, I went to a conference and, and I met Brooke Warner, who's of She Writes Press, and they're actually a hybrid publisher, which they're getting some flack right now, but they're, it's, I really like it. I don't think, you know, the, the publishing world has really changed you know, it's just, it's not the same anymore. It's not just the, the gatekeeper of this is the way you have to get your material out in the world. You know, I think, I think we've evidenced that with all the technology, you know, with all these people that do TikTok and like here you are with your podcast, you know, and it's, it's, there's a lot of opportunity out there if you just, you know, go and look for it. You don't have to do the same, same old thing. And I think that's, I think that's maybe why we're all feel like we're crazy <laughs> because, you know, it's just changing so much. It's We're just so ra- – everything's just ra- so rapidly changing, you know. And I think you just have to kind of grow, grow with the world, you know, if you want to stay on top of it. Yeah. So uh, how did the process work with She Writes Press? Well, actually, so I submitted it, and then they have to accept you. You know, they don't just accept everybody. I mean, it's like maybe um, I think they told me like 5% of the submissions that they get. So they are not just – they're not just taking anybody's stuff. You know, and I don't mean to sound – I don't mean to sound – negative like that but but they they look at something and they because any publisher it's a you know let's face it, it even veterinary medicine it's a business and so you know people they the publisher has to look at it and say is this marketable you know because you don't want to be putting your time and effort and then it you know it's not going to be successful and and they don't i think they they want to help the the writer too you know the author because um, you know, but you have to, you have to put your point in too. I mean, you can't, it's not, they don't do everything, but frankly, from what I've heard, traditional publishers don't do everything either. So, right. So you're, you're happy working with them and it's, it's a very lovely book and it seems like you've gotten quite a bit of publicity for the book. When has it, when did it come out? It came. It was uh, published on May um, May seventeenth. So, but it, I think you know the wonderful thing um, is because it's uh, it's because it's about somebody who really lived, and I think people love that. You know what I mean? I think people really want to know, like they like learning about people that really existed. I think I don't. You know, it's. It's interesting to them. I know that uh, I credit my husband with getting me more into history because, you know, I was very much a 
scientist, and, you know, I didn't take any history courses or do that. I mean, I did do some psychology as, you know, because for vet school, there's certain prerequisites, and so obviously English and social studies and blah, 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 you got to have X amount of credits in those right. disciplines, right. you know, to apply even. Um, but, you know, we got into watching PBS and, you know, and of course now I've got him watching all the <laughs> historical fiction dramas like Gilded Age and <laughs> Richardson and, you know, and, and, and Downton Abbey. I mean, we watched Downton Abbey, obviously, when it was. But, but you know, it's a, it's funny because now he's like, he, he likes it, you know, because the other thing I like about it is there's just not so much violence. It's not that I, you know, we don't watch other things, but it's kind of refreshing to, it's actually the writing and the character development and the sets and the clothes and, you know, that's what I appreciate. Mm. So you're working on your uh, book about ancient Egypt and then, mm-hmm. and then what's next after that? Do you have some ideas? Well, I'm actually, uh, there's, the next book is going to be set in California um, a little bit, about the same time frame as Lalique's, uh, after the gold rush, but before the turn of the century in California. So um, I haven't, there's not too much to tell because it's kind of in the nascent stages, but that's, that's kind of, I'm headed west. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see see what you find when you get there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've been listening to Writer's Voices. I'm Monica Hadley, and our guest today was Jay Fremont, author of Magician of Light, which is a book about the mostly the early, early life of René Lalique, although it does um, go later into his life as well. And with a strong element of the supernatural, should we say, and dealing with um, Egyptology and, um, of course, art and beauty. And we always close with a quote. And I found one that I've always liked from George Bernard Shaw that I think is suitable here. Life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. How appropriate. (laughs) Apropos. (laughs) So thank you, Jay, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.